This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation talks to biographer Mary V. Dearborn about two novels by Ernest Hemingway, For Whom the Bell Tolls and The Old Man in the Sea. Published in 1940, For Whom the Bell Tolls is Hemingway's fictional examination of the Spanish Civil War. The story deals with an American who joins a group of anti-fascist guerrillas in Spain and plots to destroy a bridge to stop the advance of the enemy. Burgess lords Hemingway's political even-handedness and writes, like all art, the book is complex, even ambivalent. The Old Man and the Sea was the last major work of fiction published in Hemingway's life. It arrived in 1952 and tells the story of an old Cuban fisherman who chases down a great marlin and struggles to bring it into shore. Burgess writes that as an example of simple declarative prose, it is unsurpassed in Hemingway's oeuvre. Ernest Hemingway was born in Illinois in 1899. He's widely regarded as one of the greatest American authors of the 20th century. His debut novel, The Sun Also Rises, was published in 1926, and he went on to publish five more in his lifetime, along with six volumes of short stories and two books of non-fiction. There have been several posthumous publications. Hemingway died by suicide in 1961. Mary V. Dearborn is a biographer and has written books on subjects such as Peggy Guggenheim, Norman Mailer, Louise Bryant and Henry Miller. The biography of Ernest Hemingway was published in 2017. You can find out more at www.maryvdearborn.com. Check out the description of this episode for all relevant links and to see a list of all the books mentioned. Here's Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to Mary V. Dearborn in July 2022. It's a great pleasure to welcome Mary V. Dearborn to the Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Mary is the author of Ernest Hemingway, a biography, one of the most scrupulous and uh, brilliant pieces of research um, that I've come across on the subject. Uh, Mary, welcome. It's, it's great to have you here. Thanks. Perhaps we could begin um, by having you tell us what was your first encounter with Hemingway's writing and also how you responded to it on that initial reading. You know, I read it in school. There, It's Hemingway's big still in the schools here in spite of being a dead white male. Uh, but even now, kids usually read the short because there are those short stories that are so brilliant. And so, you know, I was an English literature nerd if there's such a thing, but I, um, so I just love them. And I've since talked to, and I've taught them and talked to a number of people who taught them and apparently they teach themselves. 
So that's, but that was my, you know, that was just liking him as literature. Only later did I really engage with him as a personality and a force in the history of American literature. Well, the short stories you mentioned are among the things that Burgess valued uh, in Hemingway's writing. But he, he knew the Carlos Baker biography. He'd read Arthur Waldhorn's Reader's Guide. He'd also read the letters and reviewed them when they came out. And he'd read the personal memoir by A.E. Hotchner, which he didn't think much of. But he <laughs> absorbed that into the texture of his life. Um, perhaps you could say something briefly for the benefit of people who've not yet read it, though I'd encourage everyone to do that. How is the emphasis of your book different from the biographers who've come before you? Oh, it's very different. It, it, I really wrote it because I think thought it was necessary. Uh, since Carlos Baker, um, the tendency is to um, present Hemingway as a dramatic, larger-than-life ultra male hero and that not seeing him as an ordinary writer, a a brilliant writer, but just a guy and are seeing him as a, which he was a hunter, a fisherman, you know, a big game hunter, um, womanizing, which just wasn't true. It was a myth that sprang up around him. And I thought it was especially unfortunate that no woman had really looked at this and what was going on. And it really was pretty basic. I mean, when I first decided to write the book, I was at the University of Texas, where everybody's letters are. And what they have there is Hemingway's mother's um, papers. And they are like so rich and unbelievable new stuff. His mother, their reveal, was a brilliant, very weird woman. And none of the male biographers, they'd all come to Texas, but I don't, I, they could not have seen them or they did not look at them um, because there's details in there that are quite wonderful. Um, so it was a really basic thing. I thought if somebody who was not invested in this heroic ideal could maybe see him a little more clearly. And I think that turned out to be the case. So I was consciously working against that myth. I have to say, Grace Hemingway emerges uh, from your book as a very complex, very sympathetic character, all all kinds of uh, unexpected qualities that she was a a musician and a composer, and also uh, that she embraced spiritualism. And, And I think the complexity of that relationship um, is is an important part of your story, which emerges through both sides of their correspondence. Yeah, I think it is. I think his mother was really influential, and of course, he never wanted to admit that. And uh, she was; ve- they were very like each other. They both had the same kind of charm, the um, kind of charm that you know. They walk into a room, and all the air goes out of it. They're they're the one who's speaking, and uh, everybody looks to them, and. Um, she also seems to have had a lesbian, long-term lesbian relationship with a woman who had been basically the au pair in the Hemingway family. And uh, it caused problems, as you can imagine, because she was still married. But her husband killed himself not long after it began. The two women, for a while, did not live together. But after a couple of years, they lived together for the rest of their lives. And 
you know, who can tell if it's really a lesbian relationship, though in the early stages it definitely was. Letters exist to show it. Um, and that was important to him. He was uh, very fond of lesbians. I don't know what quite what to do with this, except, for example, Gertrude Stein. That's what drew him toward. Gertrude Stein and his mother kind of look alike. They're certainly the same build. And it, it was, but I think also she sowed the seeds for this um, gender unrest and gender dysphoria that, that struggled to come out in him. So she's very important, I think. One of the other qualities of your book that appealed to me very much as a nonfiction writer was the way that you you measured Hemingway's life against other people's life stories. For example, Martha Gellhorn, and you'd researched her biographies as well. And you're able to challenge some of the pre-existing narratives by uh, the depth of that research and by um, showing us and um, uh, weaving it into your story you know, the, these other lives which are well-documented. And the, the the texture seems incredibly rich because you'd, you'd done that depth and breadth of research. Oh, good. Well, that's biography, I think. But it's it's also just my, what I'm drawn to in biography. And I, to me, they're just people in a room. You know, and Martha Gellhorn, sure, there's other biographers, but I have to, you know, encounter her myself. And then, you know, often I can see the other biographies, where the biographers went wrong and why and how, and that will shape my version of them. But it's a, um, yeah, thank you. I liked, I love research, so. So I like to do that. And Martha Gellhorn's letters are in, in, um, the Hemingway collection at uh, the JFK Museum, where the archive, main archive is. And uh, Martha Gellhorn, <laughs> she engaged with one of Hemingway's biographers, and she was, she told lies a mile long, but she was so colorful and so um, involved. And this is, Mar- I don't, I know you're not asking about Martha Gellhorn, but Martha Gellhorn said she had nothing to say about Hemingway and would never speak his name again after the marriage was over. And she's constantly talking. She was constantly talking about him. So she's quite wonderful herself. Now, the first of the Hemingway novels that Burgess writes about in 99 novels is For Whom the Bell Tolls, Hemingway's epic about the Spanish Civil War, I think his longest novel. And it was very interesting to read your account of that. Burgess talks about its strong literary style, the dialogue which catches the Spanish idiom. And I think you're you're rather more doubtful. Uh, You do say that you're not sure that it's going to stand the test of time. Its place within the canon is kind of uncertain. Um, uh, Maybe you could tell us more about uh, the strengths of the novel and its weaknesses as you see them. Well, you know, the strength is that the foremost strength is he was very engaged in it, in the subject. That was really the only time he had any, um, I don't even know if you could call it political, any uh, interest in sort of politics, or I guess you'd call them current events. But he got so engaged in the Spanish Civil War, and it really was his finest hour because uh, nothing got away got in the way of that, and um, that I see more in his letters or in um, accounts that we read about his actions in the Spanish Civil War. But as far as a novel goes, 
I think it's a, um, I think on one level, Hemingway by then knew how to um, write a really good novel, you know, he, and he'd been started to make money with a farewell to arms and he wanted to make more money. And uh, he really knew how to write a bestseller, which this book became and a book that everyone loved at the time and probably will again and did for a long time. But I, I felt at this point, um, I'm not sure what that novel has to offer us. It's the the language that was probably too then, but it's antiquated and bizarre. And uh, um, there are, at the time, they couldn't publish four letter words. Well, nobody, this is really hard to, so he put in expletives, you know, in brackets. And now you can use those four letter words, but we don't know which ones he was reading. So using, so we can't go back and sort of fix that. So that's really um, unfortunate. People are saying something passionate and they said, I want you to set off this expletive bomb, you know, and it just really doesn't work. And then also the, he tries to capture, capture the, the and thou um, of the Spanish and, it just becomes quite ridiculous. Like, um, dost thou want a sandwich is the example I give. But, but also, um, I, I'm not convinced that 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 there's a way to even resurrect that dialogue. It's also, you know, by the way, which I guess is not a totally negative thing. The source of um, the famous line, um, "Did the earth move?" <laughs> So, uh, you know, no, I think that's good. I think that's good. I think that <laughs> that answered the language and it's good. But I um, I think it's an excellent novel. I think it's really, really polished. And But I tend to like ones that show the hero, show, I guess, Hemingway more. That's my, I'm guilty of that as a biographer. And he's in there like the... Um, Oh, the hero is obviously autobiographical. His father killed himself, but he's not—he's not, he's not uh, engaged in it in a way that he is in almost all his other work. Even the much worse, even worse books, um, or books that I think are not so successful. So um, I don't know. It's a great novel. It's not my favorite, but I can see. But am I really not sure if anyone's reading it now? I suspect you're right. I suspect some of the the, the shorter works are more appealing yes, um, to too. contemporary readers. Now, in 99 novels, Burdis also describes For Whom the Bell Tolls as the best fictional report on the Spanish Civil War that we possess. Presumably there, he's referring to Hemingway, Hemingway's presence in Spain as a war correspondent, suggesting it's maybe a kind of reportage or documentary work. And I wondered how far that strikes you as a fair comment about the book. You know, that's a good question because he was closer in time to it, of course. Um, do you know when 99 Novels was written? Uh, it came out in 1984. 1984. Well, anyway, he was, he knew um, that's a, a ways after the Spanish Civil War, but he knew at the time he was following both, he was following the war, I'm sure, 
And also he knew about Hemingway's involvement in reporting the war. And he was an excellent war correspondent. He was, um, it's kind of skewed in that it's very partisan. And Martha Gellhorn admitted this too, is they were on the side, you know, they were, they were passionately on the um, nationalist side and it, that shows, but on the other hand, I think that's one of the strengths of the reporting. Uh, he was right in the middle of it, and he knew which way it went. Now, in for, from the bell tolls, it's strangely not that sophisticated about politics or about what was going on. I mean, the the hero has been slightly disillusioned, and uh, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that it's a fair comment about the novel. I, it's definitely a fair comment. Um, about Hemingway's coverage of the war, I think it's clear that Burgess would have admired that. And I just think he probably admired that and saw that in the um, book, which you wouldn't be, which is not wrong to do. That is the novel that's based on the Spanish Civil War. But, you know, he's, he's saying he approved of the whole bundle, the novel and Hemingway as a reporter and Hemingway as a war reporter. You also write very interestingly about the ending of the novel. Um, connecting that with Hemingway's sense of himself and, and the way that the, the the denouement of For Whom the Bell Tolls allows the Hemingway hero to, to in many ways, perform an act that's rather more heroic than uh, Hemingway's own involvement in that war. Yes, definitely. The second Hemingway book in 99 novels is The Old Man and the Sea, a very different book, a later Hemingway work published in 1952. And... Burgess said of The Old Man and the Sea, he said, every word tells and there is not a word too many, though he also makes it clear, interestingly, in his biography that he doesn't think it was Hemingway's best novel. And I wonder how highly do you rate The Old Man and the Sea? And if that's the work that won him the Nobel Prize, is that is that justified, do you think? Um, but the old man in the sea was a really important work in terms of his um, biography, in terms of when that came. People he'd written a, across the river and into the trees, which is really just a bad novel, and it was received as such. And but the old man in the sea, everybody was so, uh, able to say, "Oh, look, the old man's got Papa's got it again. You know, he's got his mojo back," and that's certainly true. You know, it's a really good short novel. Um, and there's all kinds of, I, I, there's all kinds of, um, you know, interesting things going on in there that, um, but I think that one is mostly read in school these days in America and uh, in any case, and I don't think it holds up. I noticed that he said it, that Burgess said that, um it was good on fishing, which is certainly true. <laughs> I mean, the, the story is really good, right? I mean, if I were a fisherman, I would love that. You know, he go, goes out, kills the shark, and can't get it into shore because, um, I mean, sorry, because the the, the um, sharks are eating it. First, I don't, it's also not, you know, you don't get the Pulitzer Prize, I mean, the Nobel Prize for something, but it, that is when it came. So I guess that's not, um, Outrageous, but I just thought. I think even when I read it in school, which is probably when I was about, um, when I was about fourteen or fifteen, 
even then I saw, oh, Jesus is really obvious. Like there's all this symbolism in there and allegory and so forth. And they're, to me, they're very obvious. When you're in school, they could, that the book can seem kind of exciting because you see it without the teacher having to point it out to you. You know, Hemingway shows you where where it is and what the symbolism is. And, um, you know, I don't find that helpful. I think it's it's important in his canon and uh and important for when it came. And also incidentally he went back and, and still went back and was un- unable to write very well after that. So it was as much an exception as something else. But he he knew he'd been told the fishing story and he said, Ah, I can do something with that. And he he did. He certainly did. But again, not my favorite. Now you tell us in your biography that the old man and the sea began life as part of a much larger work and was kind of filleted out, extracted from that that bigger book. So perhaps you can put it in context for us and, and tell us more about the gestation of, of this particular novel. Oh, yeah. Interesting question. Hemingway, when he got back from the war, he knew that uh, all eyes were upon him, wanted to know how he would weigh in on World War II. And he was casting about for what he might do next. And he was, you know, it's become a cliche now, but then it was a very real thing, the the idea of the great American novel. And Hemingway wanted to do that. You know, just as he rose to the occasion of writing a bestseller for whom the bell tolls, um, now he wanted to write a great American novel. So he had this thing all mapped out where he was going to be writing about the sea, the land, and the air, you know, and there were going to be um, novels in each of that triumvirate. And this was going to be the um, the uh, book that was part of the sea. And, you know, it didn't work. I mean, this book would work, but we never got that big, um, you know, uh, three-part um, literary accomplishment. He couldn't do it, and nobody could, I don't think. And there were various, I think, um, the bullfighting books he wanted to be seen as the land and the air. I don't think he ever wrote anything in that vein. But I think the the land, that was the basis, that was where that um, important posthumous novel is the Garden of Eden, but, and, okay, and in the sea section, you have um, the old man in the sea, and also Islands in the Stream, which is another posthumous book, but it's got, um, there are sections of novels that he was trying to write, novels about the sea, and I actually really like Islands in the Stream. I think he was, that that the, the, the sea part of his um, triumvirate was he wrote more in it and it was more successful so he didn't really um he didn't really get there but uh but it was a, an ambitious idea and it probably helped him to sort of uh organize his writing reading your life of Hemingway I have a very clear sense of somebody who's trying very hard to write these great works and running up against, uh, you know, almost insuperable difficulties very often, especially in the the latter part of his career when 
the inspiration was beginning to dry up and he had all, all kinds of health problems and neurological problems and his difficulties with alcohol and resisting alcohol. Um, and and it, it's, it's horrifying to, to read that story as he approaches the end, the, the, the sheer um, uh, agony and, and complexity and difficulty and terror of, of writing. I, I thought all of those things came through uh, very clearly, um, especially when he gets bogged down in this big book that he just can't finish. He can't see his way through. And you write very well about just trying to put everything in, presumably intending to sort of take things out later. Oh, with one exception, I don't mean to interrupt, with a big, big exception, which is A Movable Feast, because that was written in 1960, a year before he killed himself, and that's a wonderful book. You know, that's Hemingway at his best. Now, there's two things that qualify that. One, he had found a trunk of his papers at the Ritz in Paris that he had stored there back in the 20s, and that had all kinds of material in it. And so some people say he just, you know, put that in a book, but even that takes a lot of skill. And it also, it's a novel. It's, it's, people read it as true that he and um, Scott Fitzgerald really did compare penis size and things like that. Things that I don't believe ever happened, though that might've, but he, um, but that throws everything for a loop, doesn't it? Because um, it's a good book, but it comes after this horrible stuff, I mean, after his writing had really fallen off, and then um, before he couldn't write at all, he couldn't even write a sentence. Mary watched him try to write a letter to to the bank, and it was all gibberish. So it was really the last time he was writing. So that's a really interesting exception, I think. But yeah, he was um, he was not able to do much by the very end, and uh, um, yeah, it was a real tragedy, and it was been happening for a long time but um no question that it got pretty bad at the end and frankly that is not in um the existing biographies Hotchner which Burgess didn't like I don't like either nobody likes that account but it's like it's like he reports some of Hemingway's difficulty without saying anything about him so people just didn't want to deal with this you know people didn't want to deal with it and he killed himself and everybody acted like it was a big surprise. And um, you could see that one coming a mile away. His father had killed himself. There was a history of it. And um, it, his father had been suffering from the same kind of deep, deep depression. I think he was a bipolar, just as I think Hemingway was. And the depression was so bad that it became that it was psychotic. So his father believed, people do when they're that bad, they believe things that aren't true, they're paranoid and so forth. And Hemingway was so bad. What really brought it home to me is they stopped, they were flying him to um, the Mayo Clinic and they stopped midway to fuel. You used to have to do that between Idaho and Minnesota. And Hemingway there tried to walk into the propellers. And that just struck me as... Uh, this guy is really determined and this guy is really is really unhinged because that's a horrible way to contemplate killing yourself. Anyway, that, that's 
that's what I see. Then you have a movable feast as the strange exception. And I still, I like that book. It's all lies, but I like that book a lot. And if I know anyone who's going to France for the first time, it's a great book to give them. It is a great book. I, I agree. And so vivid in its uh, portraiture of um, many of the people he knew and the and the, the, just the style of living and living off almost no food and being poor and that's that that's always appealing and interesting i think Burdus's life of hemingway published in 1978 is partly very interestingly a work of creative non-fiction he includes dialogue he includes interior monologues and i wonder if you've ever been tempted to draw on those devices of fiction in your own writing or if not, what you think about that, uh, as it were, creative approach to writing biography? Oh, that's really an interesting question. I I happen to like memoirs, and, and I happen to particularly like memoirs that will engage with the literary figure. And not so much that you get the writer imitating the literary figure, but you get get the writer responding to the literary figure. So I and but Burgess is extremely talented, so when he does that, it's always interesting. You know, I don't think that I could do that or would want to do that. I do think though that someday I might want to write about myself in Hemingway. And then there's a second part of this question about, um, or this issue. Sorry, you didn't ask it. Was that um. Uh, there are now all kinds of novels about literary figures. And the, the one that's associated with Hemingway the most closely is The Paris Wife, which is about his first wife, Hadley. And I can't remember. I think it's in her voice. And it tells a lot of the stories in A Movable Feast, for instance, that you um, single out as being, you know, kind of wonderful, like not having enough to eat. Anyway, it's it's a really good book. But then there have been, <laughs> there was one called Mrs. Hemingway, which is about all four wives, you know. And there, usually that doesn't work. There have been some about Zelda Fitzgerald that are kind of good. But, and I don't like the the Paris wife or, or any of them, I guess, that are about Hemingway or the women in his life. But it's that's a whole other thing. I mean, people are writing, do write more novels about literary figures. And, you know, frankly, it's easier because you, you you have the general rough outline and you can make up the details. And, and, and to be fair to those writers, it's more challenging. You know, it's you can do with it what you like, which Burgess did. Right. I mean, he he found really a kind of interesting way to do it. And um so I think there's a range, you know, of responses like that. And I happen to like most of them at that range. Right. And we'll look forward to your book about yourself and Hemingway. I, I hope <laughs> you'll, you'll do that. I mean, you, you must, please. <laughs> I think we probably both agree that Burtis's choices of Hemingway's novels in 99 novels are quite eccentric, um, quite uh, unexpected in some ways. But I wanted to ask you, having thought about this and having got close to the subject through the manuscripts and the memoirs and the letters and the diaries and looked into the, the family and all the other work you've done, uh, as you come away from the subject, which books do you think are at the centre of the Hemingway canon as you would define it? 
Oh, well, I'm a short story person. I just love the for- the short stories and almost all of them, you know, from the from the hunting and fishing ones to um um you know, ones about a prize fighter and I just think they're really vivid, really just pack the greatest punch that you could imagine, all of them. And so that I like, um, I happen to like best, uh, The Sun Also Rises. I just love that. Well, that's again, Paris in the 20s. And, I, you know, it was his first book and it's so accomplished. His first, really his first novel. It's so accomplished. And that one, you know, that one really got him over. It's hard for us to imagine this now, but there were all everybody who was um, in college or of college age in the U.S. read that, you know, and, and became started wearing berets, you know, did this um, shadow boxing and and faking, um, you know, the bullfighters action with the red cloak and things like that. That's when all that came on, and they and they would if they could. Many did fly over to. Paris and you know hang out in the cafes and that was extremely influential but I love that book and then I guess um I happen to like for different reasons the Africa books both the one um Green Hills of Africa which is its first one in the 30s and and the wife in there is Pauline Hemingway who happens to be my favorite. It's a weird thing to say, but that's a biographer for you. But um, yeah, that and the the later African book, there are two actually. They just, he throws in, there are a lot of, they're like compendiums of stuff. And he throws in a lot of them. And he it's a freedom you get. You said you write nonfiction. It's a freedom that you have with nonfiction is you can, just put a lot of stuff in and it's such good stuff that the end result works. And to, for me, I also like it because a lot of those things that he just dumps in there are, um, by, are, are autobiographical. So I like those. I don't, um, Green Hills of Africa is a better work of art. I think um, the bullfighting, now I'm blanking on the bullfighting book. Uh, anyway, I think that that's important, and I like that one a lot. And hmm, I think that um, the stories, The Sun Also Rises, and to some extent, A Farewell to Arms, I think that's a better and more interesting war novel than is For Whom the Bell Tolls. But um, I think he's still going to continue to be read. I really do. I you know, in this country, there's a lot of dead white male stuff slung around about him, but I don't think it's going to have a lasting effect. I sort of people read him anyway and make and apologize for the dead white male stuff, just as I'm doing now. But um, I, I think he'll survive and, uh, and and continue to be important. Well, it's more than sixty years now since Hemingway died. Do you think there are still puzzles and mysteries in the story of his life? Oh, absolutely. I think one of them is, um, as a biographer, this comes up a few times with my subjects who are parents. There's usually, I the biographer could come across a lot of material about their children and how the parent, how, say, Hemingway re- interacted with his children and 
it's um, usually I just don't like to go there. You know, it's recent enough that the children could be hurt by it. It's hard enough for them already living with this, you know, a famous father or mother. But um, and with Hemingway, uh, his sons have been have had particular problems in a very interesting way that I think is relevant to Hemingway as a person. But yet I don't want to see it for another 50 years. It, it just doesn't seem fair. But there is that puzzle. And also just in general, as um, actually more things do come out, especially about the wives, or maybe I'm just more alert to that, but things do still come out, and especially about the end of his life. And the, that's all um, a question. So there, there are ones still. There are mysteries. And they're really, I think they're going to be really enlightening um, when somebody wants to come to terms with them. Thank you. One final question, which we're asking everybody in this podcast series. If you could add one novel to Burgess's list of 99, which novel would that be? Oh, my goodness. I thought you meant Burgess's list of 99 um, of, of of Hemingway books. But you're asking something really <laughs> more impossible and uh, much bigger, right? You're asking who I would, what which novel I would include. Well, I'll give you one uh, that I really, actually, I when I was dealing with For Whom the Bell Tolls, I was comparing it to Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night which I would put in the 99 books, um, the, the Great Gatsby too. But um, if I'm going to choose, it's Tender as the Night. It's on the same scale. And yet I feel it's Fitzgerald is just so much more involved. It's you would know that if you've read Great Gatsby, I'm sure you have and Tender as the Night, but I would put that in. Then I'm leaving out all kinds of wonderful books, but I've been reading about Fitzgerald lately. So that's what I'd pick. Well, thank you very much. And and thank you above all. Thank you for your time. But thank you also for writing a wonderful um biographical narrative that really does succeed in breathing new life into what everyone thought were were known and, and familiar stories about Hemingway. It's a great book and um, it, it's it's been a pleasure to read it and a pleasure to talk to you about, about Hemingway and about Burgess. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it and uh, I like the Burgess connection a lot and I've learned a lot from it. So thank you. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Ernest Hemingway, A Biography, by Mary V. Dearborn, is published by Vintage and available now from wherever you prefer to buy books. You can find out more about Mary V. Dearborn and her work at www.maryvdearborn.com. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor and is performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.